Hey, what's going on, everybody? And welcome back to the Beyond the Wire podcast. I'm your host, Tim Keller. Along with me is Mr. Matt Disher, who's who's been away for a few weeks. Uh, that's why we haven't been recording. Uh, and we're definitely gonna gonna reach out to Matt and discuss what he's been doing over the past two weeks. But uh, my story is much lesser, so I'll, I'll go first this week. You go first. <laughs> um, yeah, this past Sunday, I got to attend the uh, the NASCAR race down in Richmond. I wouldn't call myself uh, a big racing fan. I don't have like a favorite driver or anything like that. Um, but my father and father-in-law are both fans, uh, took my, my wife's best friend, took her, her husband as well, uh, but got the tickets through vet ticks. If you don't know about vet ticks, it's an organization that, uh, donates tickets to concerts and musicals and plays and comedy shows and races and other sporting events. Um, it's a great, great organization. Check them out. If you're a veteran or first responder, it's an organization that is built just for us to allow us to, uh, be able to go out and enjoy some time and, and activities with our families. Got four seats, eight rows off the track. Uh, you pay one ticket handling fee. So in this case, uh, it's $14.97. We had a great time. Uh, Matt had asked before we started recording, uh, do we? did they turn left or did they turn right? Uh, obviously, if you've ever watched a NASCAR race, they do a lot of left turning um, the whole way around the track, going into the pits. Uh, uh, throughout the day, I would say that two people uh, attempted to take right turns didn't work out so well for him. There were two accidents throughout the entire race. Uh, so the two people that turned right probably work on that. <laughs> I'm going to put the hand up. You got the little L there. You know, that one's left. You want to keep going that way. Right. So keep turning in that direction. Yep. Keep uh, that but Matt, you've been gone for two weeks. Let's talk about yeah. uh, the non, you know, personal trip. Let's talk about the professional week. Where, where, where are you yeah, at? Well, what were you doing? Well, first I was looking at this and it's been, it's been since like the middle of March since we've been online. Yeah. So uh, it, it, it has, it's been a little bit of time. Uh, I, tra- I I went to DC hmm. week before last for a couple of meetings, uh, met with some people in department of labor, had some lunches. Uh, I was attending the uh, veteran jobs mission, 10 year anniversary. Uh, and, and where I was a sponsor, awesome. my company was a sponsor. We were also a founder uh, of that organization now, 11 years ago, we, I, I say it's the 10 year anniversary because we had to skip last year because of COVID mm. the whole thing got pushed. So we did that. And then, uh, we were filming an episode of the office where cameras followed us around. No, we, we did some filming. Uh, I had some of my team members in town and we did some filming, essentially some commercials that will show up on, uh, on YouTube and social media and things like that later on once they're produced. But, uh, a good three and a half, four days in DC came home for a couple of days. No, came home for one day. There you go. Packed my bag hastily ran off to the airport and my family and I traveled down to St. Thomas in the Virgin islands for spring break. Um, Terrible time, 82 degrees and sunny, slightly breezy the entire time. Mm. Uh, We only had rain for about six minutes and, and Mm. uh, you know, otherwise we were by the pool or, or by the beach the entire time. I, I wouldn't recommend it. Yeah. Um, I would. And, and one the, star. Right. <laughs> no, it was a great time. You know, here's the thing. It's been since Japan, since we were in Japan, since I was mm-hmm. stationed in Japan, that I've driven on the other side of the road. Um, and so, yes. so St. Thomas, here's the unique thing. The, the steering wheel is still on the left side, like it is in the United States, okay. but you drive on the left side of the road. So it's not like in Japan where the steering wheel is on the other side right, of the car. Yeah. So you're still driving a car that you would here in the U.S., but you're on the opposite side of the road. Uh, of course, there's a little bit of confusion there, but um, I handled it expertly and uh, didn't get into any, any car accidents. Very good. Uh, took my kid. Yeah. Took my kid scuba diving. He's 11 years go, old. Yeah. Uh, we did a, a quick introductory dive. I'm already a certified diver, as you know. So, uh, so I just had to kind of sit there and listen to the class for my son to learn how not to take a breath of water under underwater, (laughs) but it was good. Otherwise we had some travel woes as we always do. My wife Mm -hmm. and I talk about how we should probably do a separate podcast or maybe make a movie or write a book about how every time we travel, there is some sort of disaster that unravels. Uh, And I, I could list them out chronologically over the course of 15 years now. The, uh, the, the Disher traveling chronicles. And it's, here's the thing. I'm very aware that, you know, not everybody gets to go to St. Thomas and the Virgin Islands, mm-hmm. right? Paradise on earth. It's a beautiful place. Uh, and we, we travel, my wife loves to travel. We go to, we always go to a different beach, but, um, but there's always something wrong with flights. We always get canceled or kicked or 
Uh, and it's it's usually when we're on a budget airline. So I, I can't make fun of my my Delta Airlines because I always fly Delta. And 99% uh, of the time, it's on target or they make they do something to make it better if something gets messed up. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's not the case when I fly on the budget airlines. And so this time it was a canceled flight. And then uh, and then my bag got lost on the way home and got sent back and forth between Atlanta and Indianapolis a couple of times. And uh, yeah, I, Did, have thing, you recovered yeah. the bag? I got the bag. They actually okay. drove it back to my house. Oh, okay. Um, but yeah, in, in, in previous places, I had a rental car. Some lady ran into me in a parking lot in Hilton Head. This is a, a different vacation. The last time we traveled, just a couple of months ago during Christmas, we we uh, we went down to Florida and our flights got canceled on the way back. Um, I, I mean, I could talk about tropical depressions and hurricanes that have come mm -hmm. in on vacations twice or three times. I could talk about it ad nauseum. <laughs> My wife and I have joked around that people in drought stricken areas should hire us to come vacation there because no doubt if we spend a week there, it will rain. There you go. There you go. You know, you're taking that, you know, that negative and you're turning it into a positive. You're finding it's, that silver lining. It's when life gives you lemons, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, hello to you, James, as well. Uh, James Clark commenting there uh, via LinkedIn. Appreciate everybody checking us out. Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, obviously it sucks that you had that one star trip. Um, you know, sad to hear you also had one star travel. That's right. Sick, you know, oh, okay. you know, it's it, it, again, I'm fortunate that we get to go places yeah. and stuff like that. You know, I was going to make one comment about your vet ticks, by the way, because mm -hmm. because I, I realize that a lot of people avoid things like that because they're like, well, how do I prove that I'm, I'm a veteran? They use the ID me. Yes. Thing. Yes, right. So you can just go in there and say, hey, I'm a veteran. And you enter your like your social or whatever. And it verifies you right there, mm -hmm. which is a that's a really cool way to quickly certify that you are indeed a veteran mm -hmm. and then you're eligible to get those. So you can do all this online in like five minutes. Yeah, absolutely. I, yeah, I, I forgot to mention that's a great point. Yep. Yeah, if no one's uh, ever used that before the IDME system, uh, you know, it asks you what branch you served in your, your dates of service. Um, and then, uh, yeah, social security and date of birth type of stuff. It takes a few minutes to enter in. You, you send it away within five, 10 minutes. I'd say they get back to you shooting you an email saying, Hey, you've been approved. And then you're you're you know live on sites like you know Vettex, for instance, and, and start searching your local area for events for left turn driving events. Left turn driving events. Yeah, I've taken my kids to to plays, to musicals. Um, you know, I've taken the the father in law now to to two different races. Mm -hmm. So it's a it's a good thing. It's a great thing. So, and then even if you're not necessarily looking for uh, something for yourself, there are uh, service members and their families. Uh, you can say, hey, we'd like to, you know, take the family to Disneyland. Uh, and you, you yourself can donate tickets if you right. uh, want to, you know, participate in that way as well. Yep. 100%. So. Lots of different opportunities there. Real yeah. quick, uh, James Clark, who, who, who jumped in and, and made a comment on the uh, LinkedIn chat. He's the Ohio chapter lead for USA Cares, which is a nonprofit organization that does a lot of things, but they, they aim to uh, alleviate some financial strife from veterans who might have that issue. And uh, it, here in the Cincinnati area, they're actually hosting a golf outing uh, upcoming this summer. Uh, more details. I'm going to share that on my my own LinkedIn. But uh, pretty good organization I'm partnered with and working alongside of. We will be out there, you know, shooting bogey after bogey. I will. Uh, the more I play golf, the worse I get. <laughs> and so I have a couple of friends I used to golf with all the time. Okay. I just I don't really go anymore because I. I, the, the budget for buying new balls was, uh, I was way over budget. Okay. It, it sounds like maybe you possibly have some bad habits that you haven't fixed and they've just grown to, you know, become worse and worse. Right. No, I mean, it's no, it's a hundred percent the golf club's fault. Oh, got it. So every time, every okay. time I, I slice or shank, mm -hmm. no, uh, quite honestly, one of the real issues I think I have is that I'm six foot four. And yeah. I have golf clubs of a small person. Just, a, just bought a store set of clubs. And yep. And gotcha. I I feel like I am uncomfortably hunched over when I'm swinging a club, except for a driver. My driver's fine. Uh, I did have my uh, my seven iron uh, extended by like two inches, and it made a huge difference. I just I really don't want to spend the money on either getting new clubs or extending all of them. There so you go. that's yep. my excuse. That's my uh, excuse, and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> hey, that's that's probably. I think you're probably onto something there. Actually, yeah, right. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't think about that. Definitely, a uh, uh, height comes into play. 
Right. Uh, when you got, you know, standard golf clubs made for your average, you know, human that's between five, six and five, 10, you know? Right. So, right. So let's get into some of the news. Uh, Matt, yeah. you and I talked a little bit beforehand, uh, you know, as far as when it comes to the military and veterans and things like that right now, military news is absolutely dominated by Ukraine. Um, so we're going to bring a, a little bit of that. We do have a, a resume article we want to highlight here uh, towards the end of the show today. Uh, but we're going to start off with uh, President Zelensky, uh, when speaking to the UN, is accusing Russian military of war crimes. Now, this is something I'm hearing on uh, not just you know military.com, which the article we have is from. I, I've heard it from other news sources now that uh, potentially um, Russian military members are committing war crimes. Are they being ordered to commit these uh, the, these acts, or are they taking upon themselves um, specifically? Uh, one town outside of uh, Kiev, uh, known as Bucha, there are just supposedly bodies scattered everywhere. Uh, Ukrainian President Zelensky accused the Russian of gruesome atrocities in Ukraine and told the UN Security Council on Tuesday that those responsible should be immediately brought up on war crimes and charges in front of tribunals like the ones established at Nuremberg after World War II. Uh, the article goes in to detail um, about... It's not just coming from President Zelensky. There are uh, AP reporters uh, on ground there in country um, also reporting very similar things and similar findings. Um, what what I thought starting to read this article, though, uh, you know, at the beginning of the conflict, we were seeing, you know, things like the uh, the ghost of Kiev, the pilot was supposedly protecting the air, um, oh, Snake Island. It turned out a lot of those uh, initial stories uh, they're, they're, they were false. They're tales. Yeah, they were tales. Right. Um, my concern is, could this possibly be more of the same? I'm not saying it is, but that was my concern. My concern, and, and it should be a concern for anybody reading news these days, is, you know, what level of truth is there to this and how much of this is a tale? Um, I, I would hate to see things continue to escalate based off of lies and tales. So, uh, you know, the fact that these stories are being, you know, backed up by outside reporters, uh, for me, um, I would say is, is a good sign. It's not good what's happening, but it's right. a good sign it's that we're good. having multiple sources. Right. There's there's efficacy to what's happening there. Uh, yeah. This is the thing. War is ugly. So, you know, you see on social media right now when they're talking about the Russians being tried as, as war criminals, everybody likes to say that, hey – Anybody and everybody who's initiated conflict is a war criminal. Well, yeah. that's that's not necessarily true. You know what constitutes war crime, among other things, is that you are targeting civilians and civilian targets. Uh, I realize that our reference of conflict and war, you know, the, the one of the biggest references of conflict and war in modern times has been Afghanistan and Iraq, and we've seen destruction. Of course, on the news, you see destruction at its fullest capacity, but go back a number of years and you see world war ii where cities were just firebombed and, and there's a reason for all of that back then it was like you're bombing your enemy into submission there there the rules were not established quite yet it was just sort of you're trying to beat you know the germans started bombing british cities in the middle of the night uh that story goes by accident and then the the British in return then went and bombed cities in, in Germany. And then they just started bombing cities back and forth. Mm -hmm. They were initially targeting military targets, but what ends up happening is you're, you're bombing a population into submission. I said this early on, Tim, when we had this conversation, you, you can't beat, it's virtually impossible to beat or subdue a, an armed population of people who are motivated. They're not going to let you take them over. They're going yeah. to be out there fighting. So you can bring in as many tanks and people on the ground as you want to. The problem here is then if the civilians are fighting, then they, then are they combatants? So that's probably part of the story. I'm also saying this, that it appears as though Russia is targeting civilian targets, mm -hmm. not combatant targets. So when you see dead bodies on the news, it's very easy to say, oh, look at these bodies. Well, those could have been, you know, it could have been a group of 18-year-old guys out there with AK standing in the street and they had a gunfight. And now there's bodies left behind. I'm not saying that that's the case. I'm, I'm not speculating on anything. The, the the truth goes out the window when conflict starts. Mm -hmm. uh, war is ugly. Populations of people will get hurt. Children and women suffer the most. Uh, buildings will burn. 
it's really hard to have context around what's going on and how it happened. But from the looks of it, what we're seeing are apartment buildings and things like that and schools and hospitals being attacked and bombed and civilians just being shot in the street at random. And there are a couple of video instances of that, like media in a car getting shot at. There's there's a very clear video, some media that were clearly identified as media in a car driving down a street. And uh, apparently some Russian combatants on the street sort of started shooting at them and killed one of the reporters or something mm -hmm. like that. So, yeah, President Zelensky speaking in the video to uh, to the U.N. diplomats said that civilians have been tortured, shot in the back of the head, thrown down wells, blown up with grenades in their apartments and even crushed to death while in their vehicles mm -hmm. by Russian tanks. Mm -hmm. um, again, th these specific style of, of acts are what are considered war crimes. You are purposely targeting uh, unarmed individuals. If that turns out to be true, then by all means, uh, these are crimes and they need to, you know, there needs to be some sort of, uh, you know, punishment for those that commit these crimes. Uh, but as Matt said, you know, I, I'd say that probably some of these bodies were individuals that were fighting back or providing resistance. And at some point, I don't know what sort of rules of engagement the Russian military has, but at some point, if uh, you are being shot upon and your rules of engagement say you may return fire, uh, and then at which point whoever loses the gun battle loses the gun battle. Yeah. And, and listen, the United States, uh, we've been engaged in conflict for, you know, 20 years uh, since 9-11, right? Until just recently, we've been engaged in, in ongoing conflict. In fact, we are always engaged in ongoing conflict. There's always U.S. troops or special operators out there in the world doing their job. Mm -hmm. You just don't hear about it all the time. But have we... Have we misfired some weapons? Have have civilians been injured? Absolutely. It, it happens in war, and I'm not dismissing it as such, but we're also, um, you know, the United States is, is trained, competent, educated forces and commanders. Everybody's not perfect. The person on the ground makes mistakes. I know that firsthand. The person on the ground makes mistakes. That could be what's happening here. Again, there's a lot of speculation. There's a lot of different options here. I'm not, I am not uh, saying that anybody is not at fault or at fault, but uh, what one of the big understandings that I have here is like the Russian forces are largely conscripted. Mm -hmm. They're they're forced to be in the military. They're not very well trained. They're not very well capable. Uh, they're not very educated. They're not the best and brightest like the United States military is. You know, we have we have a higher uh, higher percentage of high school diplomas and and advanced degrees among the U.S. military than the civilian population by comparison. I guarantee you, this is not the Russian military. It mm -hmm. doesn't. The same thing does not arise there. So you've got potentially people on the ground who are operating on the side of an armored vehicle and there's civilians standing in the road and they're like, well, hey, let's just mow them down because who cares? You know, create an enemy out of a population of people that aren't necessarily your enemy. Yeah. And and now you've got conscripted people being paid a couple of bucks a day to go out there and do this. On the flip side of that, I've heard a lot of these troops are like unaware of what they're doing there. Yeah. And so that's even that causes even more confusion and you're talking about people that are forced to be there in the first place. And then somebody starts throwing rocks at them. What are they going to do? I don't want to be here in the first place. Bang, bang. Right. Uh, you know, all speculation. It's yeah. an ugly thing. Conflict is ugly. This is why war is so ugly because you can't control the 18 year old on the ground with a rifle. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, we continue to say it uh, every time we, we get behind these microphones, but hopefully this continues to uh, trend in positive directions. I know that they, uh, both sides continue to meet and have uh, peace treaty talks. Hopefully some sort of uh, combined agreement can be can be met and found and they can uh, hopefully put down these guns and, you know, the violence can stop. Uh, I, I, but, I think I think one more note on that topic is that how do you bring people to justice for war crimes yeah. if. I, I mean, it's the same thing as like, well, hey, Vladimir Putin, like step down or stop doing this war or whatever. And they're kind of like, well, no. Is he going to show up to court one day? Yeah. You know, it's kind of a very highly it, unlikely. Right. And then what happens if the world decides, hey, we're going to arrest you and try you? OK, well, who's got their finger on the nuclear button? You know, yeah. so that's the scary thing about this is it's a it's a really hard got the greatest military in the world. But that doesn't matter when we start slinging nukes at each other. Yeah, you know, absolutely. so. Um, the, the article does go into uh, some more details, um, you know, details I'm not necessarily comfortable with 
uh, you know, speaking over over the airways here. But if you're interested, uh, I would I would recommend going and reading this article of some of the uh, you know reported crimes that are being committed. Uh, the next uh, the next article that we're going to highlight, and Matt, you kind of brought this up with the potential level of training that the Russian military members have not received, with um, you know the lack of education they may uh, have. Russia's failure to take down Kiev was a defeat for the ages. We're seeing, uh, you know, at least early on from outside appearances, it appears that the, the Russian invasion was very muddled. It was not well planned. It wasn't um, well executed even. Um, you know, when I first heard that Russia had breached the border and that the invasion had begun, um, I think maybe this was still me remembering the Cold War and, and all the fear of big, bad Russia that was. Um, I thought Russia was going to roll right in, take over the capital within a few days. And uh, at that point, either decide this is what we wanted or we're going to take the whole thing. Mm -hmm. And they just kind of have their way. Uh, that was not the case. Um, you know, very early on, Russia advanced on some airfields near Kiev, near the, the largest city in the country, the capital of the country. Um, you know, some of these these helicopters flying troops in the special forces were met with uh, with ground fire and anti-aircraft weaponry uh, suffered many losses after um, they did uh, land at these airfields that they were hoping to, to you know, provide base for, uh, you know, met with artillery, took more losses. Uh, eventually, Russia did get their hands on one of the air bases. But now Russia has started to withdraw from these areas. Speculation is that they're kind of regrouping, re-strategizing, and we'll see another push here in the coming days or weeks. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, initially, uh, I, I think many people would have imagined that Russia's going to roll in here, steamroll Ukraine, a much smaller uh, nation, a much smaller uh, armed force, and they'd have their way with it. It wasn't the case. The Ukrainian people stood their ground. Yeah, well, they're they're equipped with javelin missiles and the you know AT4s and the RPGs and the other uh, European um, the what do they call them the laws and the law ends or the end laws sorry um, it, it, the different shoulder fired anti armor weapons it, the other thing that I've seen quite a bit of when I'm watching footage from this from these events is armored columns unsupported by infantry which is a rule that I learned day one in the Marine Corps, yes. it was that you don't send armor into anything with, without being supported by infantry. And so you see these columns of armor rolling down the street and they start getting hit with, you know, mortars or artillery, or they get hit with shoulder fired weapons. This isn't military secret strategy. This yeah. is just a country's inability to have adapted to maneuver warfare. Mm -hmm. uh, you will be beat a hundred percent of the time by a motivated, well-trained and equipped force of 10 people on the ground it doesn't matter how many tanks you bring into the fight. I mean, of course, at some point in time, those guys on the ground will run out of ammunition. But at some point in time, also, you have to refuel those vehicles or you have to get out of those vehicles to maintain them. I think that's the other piece that we've seen here, too, is poorly maintained vehicles, mm -hmm. uh, 1970s technology, oh, yeah. old, old vehicles. Right. And so, you know, this compounded with conscripted forces and people who don't know what they're fighting for. Uh it's interesting to watch. I thought the same thing, Tim. I was like, they're just going to come in here and destroy everything, but they couldn't even get into the town. Now, again, speculation that it was a, it was almost like they were just kind of fishing to see what would happen in the Kiev region. Now they're going to move all those forces to somewhere else. This has got to become, I mean, every military operation is very expensive, but for the Russians, like this is becoming a really expensive, financially expensive. And from a human capital standpoint, costly invasion they're getting their butts kicked. Yeah. Um, and that's what it looks like. It, you know, it's tough to look at war as an investment, but, uh, you know, like you said, it, it is a it is a financial investment into something. And the return you're getting here is, is negative, uh, you know, from a Russian perspective. Um, they have maintained and, and go, you know, got control of places like um, uh, Donbass, which was mostly like Russian-speaking, Russian-leaning, Russian-supporting. Uh, area of the country, uh, some some port towns down along the Black Sea, um, but you know, not that one place is more important than the other. But the largest city in the country, the initial target, 
of the initial uh, invasion uh, stayed strong and stayed put. Mm -hmm. uh, there was fighting in the city for a while. Some outskirt towns, um, you know, fell to Russian, you know, aggression. But uh, since then, the Russians have been pushed back or have, or have pulled back. So, uh, you know, I, to the Ukrainian people, great job. Right. I, I think the other note here is, and, and I think I learned this when I went through anti-armor school at uh, Camp Pendleton, where we talked about armor identification. We had to go through schooling to learn how to use the Javelin missile and learn how to use the tow missiles and the AT-4s and the small rockets and things like that. All of this was anti-armor weaponry. One of the things that we talked about regarding the Soviets in Afghanistan, and, and I, I make the distinction, the Soviets are not the Russians. It, a lot of it was the same tactics, to the, yeah. but it was a different element of uh, maybe a lot of the same leadership, but different element back then, different governmental element. The Soviets went into Afghanistan and fought a war in the 80s with the Afghans. And and this is well known for uh, the fact that the like farmers in Afghanistan, sheep herders, farmers, people that lived on the side of a mountain, not to discredit them at all, beat the largest standing military in the world uh, in, in these conflicts in these hills. And it was because the uh, the Soviet military gave all their power to their command element leaders and no control or training to the what would be the NCO level in the U.S. military. And so what would happen is the Afghans realized very quickly that, uh, and this happened in other countries too, but this was an example from Afghanistan, they would put tripwires that were at the same level as the command vehicle's antenna. So all the other vehicles could roll down the street and they didn't have these big antennas and the command vehicle would roll through with, it, with its, you know, 10 foot whip antennas and it would trip a tripwire and it would take out that specific vehicle and kill the commander. And then everybody else would just sit there because nobody could take charge. They'd be calling for orders over the phone, over the radio. And that's something else that I've noticed here. You hear about these generals being killed on the news. You're hearing about a handful of Russian generals have been killed in the streets of Ukraine. Part of that is a strategy, right? It's mm -hmm. uh, something we learned was take out the communications, take out the commander. Anybody you're fighting, take out the guy with the radio so he can't call for help, but then take out the commander because in a lot of cases, a lot of militaries operate that way. If the commander is not able to command, nobody knows what to do. They just retreat. And that's basically mm -hmm. probably, you know, I'm not an intel analyst. I'm not a, I'm not a military tactician by any means, but these are like the little nuts and bolts that we take out of the stuff that we learn. Mm -hmm along the way about combat strategy. And it always has been this. And yeah. I'm betting the same or similar type of thing is happening here. They're, they're targeting the command elements. They're, they've killed a handful of generals. Well, now who's commanding the streets? The other thing is, how many of these generals have actually served in, in the military? Like how many of these generals are actually qualified to be mm. generals, right? Yeah. You have that, uh, you know, awarded, you know, a bunch of stars and right. a bunch of medals and ribbons. And so yeah. now that we're in conflict, guess what? You're going to go and you're going to lead these men well, you've never done any of this before. You have right. no idea. Yeah, you, what didn't, you're you, to didn't, you didn't grow up fighting yeah. in, in this in this element. You didn't. Yeah. You weren't there the whole time. Yeah, that's potentially the case. Uh, and Matt, you bring up the, the good point there. Uh, Russia, the Soviets, it's, it's kind of been this case now for 40 plus years. Uh, it's that cut the head off the snake and the body falls. Mm -hmm. um, it's kind of been the way, the, the playbook on how to beat these, these people now for 40 plus years. And yeah. Uh, it could potentially still be that way by the way it appears. Right. So, yeah, right. Absolutely. And yeah, I, I would say that since day one, I've been um, impressed and and uh, um, happy for the Ukrainian people. Uh, there yeah. we go. There's a comment. Uh, LinkedIn user here. Uh, the UN to suspend Russia from 47 member Human Rights Council in the wake of videos and photos from Bucha. Uh, Russia has put countries on notice that it would consider those that vote in favor or abstain as performing an unfriendly gesture. Hmm. So it's posturing. It's a lot of threatening. Uh, it's the same thing that's happening right now with the U.S. sanctions and the sanctions from the rest of the world. They're basically saying, like, stop this. We're not going to come in and fight you, but we're going to be unfriendly from this point. And now Russia is apparently saying, well, if anybody votes in favor of these additional suspensions and, and sanctions, then we're going to consider that unfriendly right or uh, you know it's this something similar is happening in, in north and south korea right now north korea mm. is again threatening the south with, with like if you push us we're going to use nukes it's threats and the, the problem is that everybody's pointing nukes at each other it gets ugly like where does this thing end you know mm. yeah absolutely 
Absolutely. And uh, so while we're seeing a lot of the fighting uh, going on in Ukraine being done by ground forces, uh, you know, there's there's a small uh, portion of this being fought in the air. It's not a lot of uh, fighting at sea. It's not a lot of, you know, there's nothing in the ocean. The Black Sea is there, but um, I can't recall any major events happening in the Black Sea. So the Navy and Marine leaders are watching from a distance and paying attention to Ukraine as they see this as a chance to prepare for China. The idea here is if a conflict were to arise between the U.S. and China, they feel a large portion of the fighting and the strategic uh, you know, sides of this battle would be done and won uh, via the sea and via the ocean. So that's where the Navy and a Marine Corps joint effort would definitely uh, you know, be rewarded. So uh, Commandant of the Marine Corps General David Berger is quoted as saying, the conflict in Ukraine, for me, validates the last couple. Uh, validates the last couple. He's saying that um, the conflict in Ukraine is providing key advice about how to deter China. Um, he explained that conflicts in Europe showed him that you need a really strong land force to deter, to deter a country like Russia in Europe. Conversely, a large aquatic Indo-Pacific region uh, would be a very strong Navy and Marine Corps team. Mm -hmm. um, I I don't like any of the I don't like any of the the discussion about conflict with China. I never have. Hmm. Obviously, I don't like any discussion of any conflict. But but the, the the bigger issue here is that we from a from a financial and business standpoint, the United States and China go together well. Like there's a lot of like yes. really good. I mean. There's a lot of good business relationships. There's there are products being made. I, some, I know some people would disagree, like, well, we should bring all the production back to the United States. Well, regardless of all of that, you're, you're able to produce material. You're able to have really good business relationships. All of that is solid. This is politicking. It's politicians fighting each other for control of stuff, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm oversimplifying this. I know that there's a, a lot bigger of a conversation to be had there. But the scary thing is right now you've got the the essentially the three world powers are pointing weapons at each other and kind of saying, hey, stop this. Uh, I think that China and the United States look at probably what happens if we were to go toe to toe. And that is the economic sanctions that have happened to Russia, for example, would be devastating to all parties, to any yes. any unalliance <clears throat> country. So, of course, China will have its allies. United States will have its allies. Who loses in that economically? Like everybody does, mm -hmm. right? Let's take the weapons out of the picture. Everybody stands to lose just based on production and business and where the money is tied up and where the investments are tied up and things like that. I mean, I know that there are a, a, a lot of uh, Chinese interests around the world, even in the United States, infrastructure. Mm -hmm. I mean, things that are owned by Chinese nationalists or government uh, and vice versa. So it's Nobody stands to win from this. You know, the no. war, the next world war is not going to be fought like World War II was. It's not going to be like, let's produce a bunch of ships and shoot at each other in, in the ocean. It's going to be like ships won't even make it where they're going. They're going to be like wiped out of the water. Um, Matt, you brought up the the, the sanctions against Russia. Um, there is talk and, and thought that going forward, um, that is almost going to be the new nuclear deterrent. It's yeah. don't mess around if enough countries decide that what you're doing is wrong or or incorrect. This is the way to, you know, put those countries back in check. Uh, you know, we talked about this a few weeks ago that uh, this could be kind of the playbook that we're showing to China now. Like, uh, but I do completely agree. If those sanctions were to be introduced onto a country like China, um, that's going to hurt us just as much as it would um, China itself. It wouldn't it's be good for anybody. Yeah, it's devastating. And I, I think the other piece of this is like, what happens when you financially or economically devastate anybody? Then, then what? Then, then does it become let's go to blows with, with nuclear weapons? So, that's the scary piece. Uh, everybody's got some interest here, and and that keeps people, I think, aligned, and it keeps countries and governments aligned. Again, always the 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 really bad part of any of this is like. Nobody, no American citizen has beef with Chinese citizens, right? We don't have beef with the Russian people. It's it's these politics and these political borders and these governments. 
And I'm not saying this about right, right about Russia's invasion of Ukraine. It's not okay. It's it's mm -hmm. not okay when anybody goes to take military force. And the United States was criticized about this over Iraq for for many years, and rightfully so. Right? Like, were we there for the right reasons? And that's not a debate I'm having. I'm just saying this is what people were asking. Mm -hmm. uh, it's it it becomes apparent that you know some people in Russia, for example, don't even know that the, that there's an invasion of current uh, Ukraine or why there's an invasion happening. Are the Chinese people on the same boat? Do they have the ability to elect or or move their politics in a certain direction if it doesn't meet their needs? You know, here in the United States, we can say, hey, we don't agree with these conflicts and we don't like what the government's doing and the government's pointing nukes at this guy and pointing weapons at that guy. Should we vote them out? Yes. Within the next yeah. couple of years, we can absolutely vote them out. Uh, yeah. I don't know if some of these other countries have that ability. And so it's kind of a different discussion. It's easy for us to have this conversation. It's not so easy for them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's tough seeing things from different perspectives at times. Mm -hmm. and, and Matt, that's a great, uh, a great point you make about how, uh, you know, one of the beautiful things about this country is every four years, every two years uh, in some elections, you have the, uh, the ability to say, you know what, I don't like what you've been doing. I'm going to go with someone else. Right. And you can, uh, you know, that's that's our way of making change. Uh, going back to the article here, uh, Admiral Gildy of the U.S. Navy um, said that one of his uh, takeaways from the conflict was a reinforcement of his services choice. Uh, it's called divest to invest, uh, essentially wanting to uh, break down some of the, the older ships and weaponry that the Navy still has in use, uh, reinvest, you know, that money. And that time and that effort <clears throat> into new technologies and new ships. Um, you know, his, his quote here is, uh, you know, you can only have so many ships that are going to be properly manned, properly trained, mm -hmm. as well as armed. Uh, you know, if you continue to grow uh, a naval fleet at some point, you just don't have the resources or the time to train those individuals that are going to need to be on those, those ships. You're not going to have uh, the resources to build the ships properly. And you're not going to have the ammunition in order to uh, put on these ships so they can, A, be effective and uh, B, defend themselves. If right. Needed. It's not massive force anymore. It's not, uh, you yeah. know, we had this huge military built up when we went to World War II, uh, just a massive Navy and, and things like that. It's not necessarily like that anymore. I think JFK said this during his presidency that the, the conflicts of the future are going to be fought with smaller, more capable elements. And I'm not saying that verbatim, but it was a quote somewhere along those lines, which is where the special operations forces came from, like the the advent of things like the Navy SEAL teams and and then, you know, moving into the 2000s, the, the joint, the JSOC, the Joint Special Operations Commands and things like that. The same thing goes for the Navy uh, and, and for these large historical, large forces with all these huge ships and all these people, if technology can take 10 people off of a ship, right? Or if technology can can do the job of 20 people, you're going to have, you're going to need less people. Uh, it also goes into play with, depending on how your conflicts are changing, like 10 years ago, we were fighting a war on terror. We didn't really have a need for, in mass, we didn't have a need for a Navy mm -hmm. uh, in Afghanistan, right? Like it's not a, it's not a naval theater. The Navy played a part there, but you don't have a, a Navy theater there. Well, now if you're talking about conflict with the likes of China, for example, that's a lot of coastline. That's a lot of real estate. There's going to be a naval battle there. Um, mm -hmm. You know, all of this, again, it's all, it's all scenario based. It's all hypothetical. Like God forbid we ever end up there, but uh, your capabilities change. If we've got these like littoral ships right now that are being taken out of service because we just don't need them or they're not being used or something like that. Uh, the same argument can be made. Like, do we, do we need smaller or larger aircraft carriers at $3 billion a piece? You know, uh, you know, and I'm not, again, I don't have any of the details. I don't know the answers to those, but that's how this, this conversation is unraveling is like, what does the next 10 years look like? And you have to be able to change hundreds of billions of dollars of budget and manpower and equipment to meet that, to, to stay ahead of that need. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, yeah, you see that with uh, some of the best businesses. In the, in the in the world or in this country it's the countries that are best suited for the next five ten years uh, that continue to find success uh, mm -hmm. you know it's good to always focus on the day as well but if you don't have a plan for tomorrow uh, when tomorrow comes you're going to be left you know standing still 
Right. That's not what any of us need. So same thing with our government, same thing with the military. It is, is the nation that can best predict what future uh, could possibly be, and that includes conflict. You know, they're going to be best suited to handle that conflict when it does arise. Right. So, 100%. Uh, let's go into uh, our last article of the day. This one, you know, we've, we've talked about an, enough about war in Ukraine and what the next 10 years of conflicts could look like. Let's let, let's talk about five signs your resume might need a professional review. Uh, Matt, you've brought it up uh, multiple times on the podcast in the past that um, many companies nowadays are using ATS, what's known as applicant tracking systems. Uh, these are systems that are set up to kind of quickly scan through resumes and cover letters and look for, you know, those those keywords, uh, those those quick little uh, tidbits. Matt, you, you've mentioned look at the job posting itself, make your resume look as much, you know, without breaking the boundaries of truth. Um, make your resume look as much like that job posting as possible because those are the keywords that that system's probably going to be looking to grab. Mm -hmm. um, when it qualifies, Hey, this is a good resume. Let's pass this on to the individual. It's going to, you know, look at that with their own human eyes. Um, and then there's going to be applications that have none of those keywords and that system is just going to automatically kick you out. You could potentially be the best candidate for the job, uh, but your resume didn't stack up against those others. Um, so that's just, you know, one thing you need to look out for here. Let's, let's get into these five. Uh, number one, your resume doesn't quantify your work. Another great point that Matt, you've brought up throughout the uh, throughout the years. We'll go back to this sales um, example. If you're in sales and you've been doing sales and you're applying for another sales position, you need to quantify your value. You need to put it in dollars and cents. What your level of expertise in the sales field could potentially bring this, you know, new employer. What sort of revenue could you generate that you have generated in the past? Uh, for your current company or past companies that you're bringing to the table. Right. There's, you'll see on resumes that people put in bullets and, mm -hmm. and the bullets will be something like I was responsible for doing the website, or I was responsible for shipping orders and things like that. And it's like, that's great. Look, anybody can put that on a resume. I want to see stats that we can talk about. I want to be able to see that uh, to your point, Tim, if you've been in sales and you had to sell widgets in a year and you had a goal of selling 80 widgets, I want to see that you met that goal or surpassed that goal. I want to see that you sold a hundred widgets, which then earned the business, you know, a hundred million dollars in, in revenue or whatever that number is. Right. So this is what makes hiring managers and recruiters respond to your resume. I'm really big about networking too. So I always use the LinkedIn example, get on LinkedIn and make sure that your profile also talks about numbers. So LinkedIn can be a little bit more fluffy. It can be a list of all the things you do, right? Like I, in my job, I do what feels like a hundred different things every day. There's not one set out strategy where I'm just doing these like two things, these two areas of responsibility. I'm, I'm handling different conversations and technologies and, and contracts and payments and things like that on a day-to-day -day basis. But on my resume, if I were to write out a resume, I could tell you numbers in terms of how large my budget was, how I performed toward my goal, how many people I hired or was responsible for hiring, what that meant for uh, business earnings or tax incentives or payroll savings and things like that. That's what I talk about in my program. So people like to see those. Um, to your point, Tim, some of the applicant tracking systems will rank people based on AI, based on what it thinks this person is or is not going to be toward that job. But I would say that most companies are not using a system that automatically rejects candidates at all. Uh, the only automatic rejection I've ever seen is if you go in there and one of the questions is like, do you know how to use Microsoft Word? And your answer is no. And that's a job requirement. It will auto reject you because you put input in there that said, I don't know how to do this job. Mm. Similarly, if you applied to a sales job and it said, hey, we need three years of experience and you check the box like, no, I don't have three years of experience. It's going to auto reject you because you put an input in there that doesn't qualify you for that job. Or you don't have a, it's like applying to a doctor job and you're not a doctor, right? Yeah. Yeah. You're not even going to be considered. Nobody's going to look at you. So make sure that your resume quantifies your work, but also make sure that, to Tim's point, that your application and the questions it asks you, the knockout questions, as we call it, sometimes the, the ATS will ask you a series of yes or no's. Make sure that you're matching what the job is asking for 
Because if you say no to something simple, like I, I know how to drive a car and you're applying for a taxi driver job and you say, no, you're not getting that job. They're not even going to take a look at you. They've got 200 other applicants to get through. Yeah. Um, and number two is lacking the right keywords. Hiring managers using a job site's ATS specify certain words to collect qualified resumes. This might be in any section of your resume, including education, employment history, or the skills section. Qualified candidates should use the job listing. Matt, you've brought this up before to tailor their resume for specific keywords and add those words to their resume. If somewhere all the words are present, present the ATS will ensure that your resume. I'm sorry, if, if none of those words are present, the ATS will ensure your resume never gets to a human. So the way that that works is, again, it's AI, artificial intelligence. Typically what it does is the job description has a bunch of keywords in it or has a bunch of words listed in it, right? So we need somebody who has applicable pharmaceutical sales experience. We need somebody who has worked with physicians and nurse practitioners. We need somebody who knows how to work in hospital systems, et cetera, et cetera. So like those, all those words I just threw out are keywords. Um, and what that system is looking for in that job description is, does that person have those words listed inside of their resume somewhere? Generally, again, these systems are not auto-rejecting people based on keywords. What they will do is probably rank you. And, and this helps recruiters to say, if I'm looking at 200, 300 applicants, and I'm also working on 40 different requisitions, if I'm working on hiring for 40 different jobs, I don't have time to walk through every single resume. So what that system might automate a little bit of is taking a ranking system. This person, person A, applicant number one, has 90% of the keywords that we've listed. They have hospital systems and pharmaceuticals and doctors and nurse practitioners. It's picked out those words. And oh, by the way, it can tell that you have 10 years of sales experience. So it might rank you as an A. So you're going to look at, as a recruiter, I'm going to look at the A candidates first. Not all systems work this way. A lot of systems do work this way, especially in bigger, busier companies. Uh, the alternative to this is that you have a recruiting team of like 500 people trying to do all of this. And that's very inefficient when you start scaling out people teams to look through resumes. Yeah. Uh, number three, unclear or misleading titles. This one uh, applies greatly to the uh, the veteran field and, and those transitioning from the military into the civilian world. So for instance, Matt, you and I were both combat engineers, uh, but let's say one of us uh, dealt with, you know, media production or, or reporting of some sort. You don't want to put in like combat reporter. Uh, that's not going to, you know, one for one translate into the civilian world, but being able to, uh, you know, highlight some of the, the, uh, you know, articles you've written or videos you've helped produce. Uh, if you are applying to be a reporter at a newspaper or for a magazine or for a website, if you're going to, you know, produce videos for an up and coming podcast or, you know, something like that, those are the words that you're going to want to use. Uh, you know, Matt, for you and I putting combat engineer, that doesn't mean anything. It's not going to translate. If, if you and I were getting out of the military today and, one of us decided, hey, you know, I really liked working with demolitions. I want to, you know, go to a civilian demolitions company. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe highlighting and listing the actual demolitions we've worked with. Right. And speak of the years of experience we have working with those demolitions. Those are going to be things that a civilian demolitions company is going to say, oh, we work with TNT. Right. They've worked with TNT. Right. We work with Dynamite. Combat it, engineer it, doesn't mean much. Yeah. And, and this is the thing, you know, back to that, especially relevant for people who are currently in the military, getting mm -hmm. out of the military soon, your, your job title and all of the cool things you did in the military that sound really cool in movies and video games don't <laughs> matter to the civilian employer anymore. So, yeah. so putting on your resume, like I'm a machine gun team leader, uh, as a hiring manager, I'm like, okay, like I get it. I understand that as a, as a veteran, I understand what that means. The common civilian looking at your resume that the average 25 year old recruiter who just, you know, scraped by and barely graduated college or, you know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. this person doesn't have a reference of the military. Right. And so they're kind of going like, hey, I'm in my first job right out of college or or I'm in my first job out of high school and I'm a recruiter and I'm looking at a resume and I'm trying to figure out what this person is. I don't know what a machine gun team leader means. And that sounds ultra aggressive. And maybe I'll just avoid this person. That's really what happens instead of trying to jump on, on the phone with you and have a conversation and figure this out, they're just going to move to the next relevant person that looks like what the job is asking for. And so 
people do this a lot. I've also seen people outpace themselves. The guy who starts a small business in his home office shipping widgets to people off of Facebook calls himself the president, CEO, and chairman of Smith Enterprises, right? And so uh, that makes it sound like, well, this guy is a CEO. He's an executive level leader. And like, what am I supposed to do with this person? He's applied to an entry level position that has nothing to do with what he's been doing in, in his uh, in his little part-time job. So these are all the things, make your resume job titles look as much like what the job is asking for. And, and to Tim's point, if you were a combat engineer, for example, or an infantry gun team leader, and, and you're applying to a job that sounds similar, put on your resume that you were a team leader or a squad leader. You were a small unit or small element leader. I led you know, five people in austere environments and discontinuous circumstances, then you could put in one of those bullets. I was a combat engineer for four years or eight years. Somebody in that, in that theater, somebody in that, in that industry might know what that means. And they're like, okay, that's relevant. You know, mm -hmm. same thing happens in my industry. When I get a resume for a CB in the Navy, uh, it doesn't necessarily say I'm a CB across the top. What it says is like, they're a construction project management professional. Mm -hmm. Somewhere in there, I might find I was a CB for 17 years. I'm like, oh, well, that's completely relevant. I know exactly what this person has done. And now I'm going to plug them into the job for which they're uh, applying. Yeah, absolutely. And we have a question off of LinkedIn that, that kind of goes along those lines. Can you say in a resume what your equivalent position is? So the example they give, if you were a senior non-commissioned officer, could one say they were a director or manager? If one was a lieutenant colonel, could you equate that to a VP? My answer to that would be don't outpace yourself. And, and, and what I mean by that is don't make yourself look bigger than you are. Uh, and, and the reason I say that is because one of the most common issues we also face in recruitment or hiring is looking at somebody who, who might be too expensive or uh, they might be you know, too beyond the position for which they're applying. So we see this a lot, people coming out of the military, they're like, well, I'm a colonel. And I'd like to step into, uh, you know, this junior level position. Well, the problem with that is that as a colonel, you're not going to last long in this position, not because you're not capable, but because the next time something good comes along that pays you what you've earned, you're going to bail on us. And we don't want to take the risk of, of bringing you on board anyway. So, uh, you know, in this example, given if, if, if I were a senior NCO, I'm going to bring this back up real quick, a senior NCO, I would call you a, uh, I would call you a a team manager, I would call you a manager, a management level professional or something along those lines, or an operations professional, operations manager, operations supervisor. Be careful you're not going too high because in corporate America, a director, by all for all intents and purposes, a director in a in a solid position, you know, a director at a, a Fortune 500 could be a really well experienced person with mm -hmm. you know 20 or 30 years of corporate experience. Uh, whereas in the military, you probably weren't at that same level leading that same sort of thing for 20 or 30 years. You might be, uh, but most people spend a 20-year career in the military, right? Or most people who do a whole career in the military do 20 years, but you weren't at a director level for all 20 of those years, right? So just bear that in mind. Think about how you classify those. If you were leading, if you were a uh, company first sergeant, yeah, for all intents and purposes, you are a, you're a large team manager. Mm -hmm. You're managing, you're an operations manager for a large team. If you were a lieutenant colonel, uh, I, I wouldn't necessarily call you a VP because in corporate America, a VP equates to somebody with 20 some odd years of experience leading corporate teams. You don't, again, want to outpace yourself. I would call you a large team manager or director or an operations director. Make sure that you clearly describe what that means in your bullets though, so that somebody's going to read through it. One other note here is that recruiters and hiring managers tend to look at resumes for 10 to 25 seconds. So you want it to be very clear and concise very quickly and early that you are the person for the job, that you have what this job is asking for you, you for. So titles aside, put the experience and quantify, again, put the numbers down. Call yourself whatever. You can call yourself the president of the world, but if you were only leading a team of five people for three months, you're not the president of the world, unfortunately. So yeah. just bear that in mind. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, number four, improper formatting. Uh, this does not necessarily mean your resume is poorly written or presented in a bad way. If your resume was going directly into the hands of a human, chances are that the human would probably understand the information given a second look. But there are many chances that your resume is not going to a human and is likely going to go to a computer. It is important that your resume is easy to read. It has standard font and uses a clean layout 
as well placed titles, dates, and accomplishments. So all these things kind of seem to tie together, you know, uh, your, your accomplishments. Again, you want to have, uh, you know, you want to have numbers and statistics and you want things that are, that are, uh, you know, able to be backed up um, when you're having the discussions. But yeah, the, the clean layout of a resume, um, it's essentially your first impression you're making on people. If your resume is disheveled, they're probably going to expect that the candidate themselves is also going to be that way. Right. That was actually the first point I was going to make. I mean, there's no reason not to have a well-formatted resume, especially as a veteran. There are sources and resources and tools out there that you can use that will help you build a good resume. Microsoft Word, in, when you create a new document, it has resume templates that you just fill in with your times and dates and your bullets. So the, there's really no reason not to have a well-formatted resume. Uh, I'd say the second point to this article, it is going to a robot. It's going to a machine. Uh, a lot of applicant tracking systems in modern times, again, they use this AI. And what that AI does is it breaks your resume into little sections that I, as a recruiter, can now read inside of my software. I don't want to have to open your PDF document. I just want the system to have parsed it out so I can see date by date, line by line, what's on it. And I can see your education. And so the AI actually breaks down your education. I can say, well, this person needs to have a master's degree in underwater basket weaving. Do they have that? And if the answer is yes, it's right there on my screen. I don't have to open your resume and fish for it. So that's why the, the formatting piece is very important. But again, at some point in time, your resume might end up on somebody's desk. You don't want it to look like your, you know, your fifth grade student wrote it out for you. You want it to look like a professional wrote it because at some point in time, you're going to be writing reports and things like that at work. You want to make sure that it looks good. We've got this question in here. I've bounced around a lot since becoming a civilian. My resume is pages upon pages. Is this automatically looked down upon? For government resumes, if you're submitting to a government job, these really lengthy 10-page resumes are fine. Uh, there's actually a certain format. You can look this up online. A certain format that a lot of federal jobs are looking for, and it does include length. Uh, I'll tell you that the rule of thumb for civilian jobs and corporate jobs is uh, usually no more than one page. If you absolutely have to, then two pages condense your work experience into, again, bullet point number one on this article, condense your work experiences into whatever is relevant to that job. If somebody wants to ask you more questions and you want to tell more about your career, if you've done a 20-year military career, you probably have 30 pages worth of stuff that you could put down. Nobody's going to flip through that. So make sure that if you're applying to a sales job, you're, you're now, uh, or a logistics job, you're now telling, in my 20 years of military service, these are the things that are relevant to this job based on what the job description is asking for. Break those out, break those experiences out and say, I've done this, I've done this, I've done this, and then list those things in your resume. Try to keep it to one page or at the most two pages. That's that's my advice. Some recruiters have different advice, but the, the less information I have to flip through, the easier it is to get you where you're going. And it's also easier for the system, the ATS, to, to parse you out. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, if you're transitioning into breeding horses, your time spent working uh, as a cashier at Dick's Sporting Goods is not relevant to that job. Well, mm -hmm. it is work experience and, you know, they could possibly bring it up during an interview. Hey, uh, we see after college, you didn't have any work experience for the first seven years. Oh, you were doing jobs that didn't necessarily tie into what you're applying for now. Uh, and then number five, and uh, Matt, this ties in with, you know, you know that, that whole thing of uh, you know, you got to constantly be networking. It wasn't reviewed. Number five is it wasn't reviewed. Anyone will tell you that it is important to get another set of eyes on things that are important, uh, such as a resume. Having a friend or a coworker look over your resume will help you catch spelling errors, typos, and other mistakes. I know for an instance, if I misspell a word, for some reason, my brain says that word spelled right. And I could read it over 10 more times. Mm -hmm. My brain every time is going to say that's spelled right. If I give it to somebody else, they're immediately going to go, that's not how you spell that. Oh, right. Shoot, you're right. Yeah, let's uh, let's fix that. Uh, so yeah, find someone in your network that you trust uh, with this sort of information. Send it over to them. Let them check it out. Get some feedback. Let them tell you, hey, you know, this just doesn't look right. This, what are you applying for? Because half of this stuff doesn't tie into that. Mm -hmm. You know, just get a second opinion on these things. Um you know, companies like Monster will offer free resume reviews to catch errors that will get resumes discarded by ATS and help you make sure that your resume gets into the hands of a real person. 
if you're using your network properly, if you're on LinkedIn, for example, you could go to LinkedIn and say, hey, is anybody out there, can anybody out there recommend a resume review resource? Or can somebody take a look at my resume? And I guarantee you, you're going to have five, 10 plus people who come back and knock on your door and say, I'll look at your resume, send it over to me. I do this all the time. I do this on Facebook too. And some of the military groups I'm on on Facebook, when people ask, and this is non-military too, I've had people in my community Facebook page ask, for reviews, uh, or I'm, I'm applying to a job and I can't seem to get the interview, I'll say, fire your resume over to me. I'll take a look at it. So that's, you always want to have a second or third set of eyes on it and, and make sure that you're in the right place. Because quite frankly, even with the best resume in the world, you could still apply to a hundred jobs and nobody calls you back. Yeah. That's, that is par for the course that happens to everybody. Don't think you're unique when you're applying to jobs and like just nothing's happening. I, I wrote an article years ago called, uh, applying to an ATS and sitting back is the steam engines of applications. It just means it's obsolete. It's obsolete to do it that way. Don't just apply and then sit back and wait, apply and then go find people in that business and start knocking on their door and ask them, Hey, I've applied to this job. Can you tell me more about it? Can you get me to the right person? Cause that, that really does, it shows interest and it shows that you're, you're doing your homework. Companies yeah. want go-getters. They want people to, uh, to want to engage with them. Yeah. One one more note here. I just noticed something about this previous comment. This person was asking, I've bounced around a lot since becoming a civilian. I thought the same thing. Yes. Yeah. It so, could be a red flag. Potentially. Per, yeah. So the other part of my answer here is, aside from a really long resume, yes, it is. It's going to be a yellow or red flag if, if you're switching jobs every six months. Uh, just be prepared to answer that. And if you stayed at a job for just a couple of months and like you left and you've got a couple of those, I would recommend just taking them off your resume and having a blank space of you know, a couple of months versus I didn't have a job uh, versus I had this job for three months. And then I went to another three month job then another three month job. Because what that shows is I'd rather ask a person a question about why did you have a gap here? Uh, maybe you switched jobs and took some time off versus why do you keep switching jobs? Why, why, why are you switching jobs? Now, all of this to say we are funding our own retirements these days, right? There's, there's very rarely pensions anymore. You're not sitting around at a company for 40 years waiting to be paid a retirement anymore. You take your 401k with you. So of course, if you're landing new opportunities that are moving you up and out and progressing you a little bit further, um, you want to be prepared to talk about those. But I would say don't make a resume pages upon pages of job hops, especially if they're like condensed into a, a few a few years, because that's going to look really bad. It's going to be a yellow flag. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, number five, it was that, you know, wasn't reviewed. Matt, we talked about, you know, how important the network is, uh, you know, if that, if that person that helped you get your resume in order and get you into the hands and, you know, in front of the person that's going to make a hiring decision and you land an interview, uh, again, go network with those people and say, Hey, you know, you want to help me just prepare for this interview a little bit. You want to throw some questions at me mm -hmm. just, you know, the more you practice it, Matt, you've talked about sending uh, an individual who is overly qualified or has no interest in working at, uh, you know, that 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 Dick Sporting Goods again. They, they don't want to be a cashier at Dick Sporting Goods. Apply, get the uh, you know, go get the interview because guess what? You're going to get the practice. You're going to get to sit in front of a, another human being and answer questions about yourself. And even if you know you have no interest in that specific job, you're going to walk away uh, gaining some sort of knowledge about yourself and yourself. Right. I mean, look, I'm the most long-winded person on earth. I can talk about one subject for hours on end, and I know that. Uh, but I would tell you that a fault of a lot of people is the exact opposite, is that they are unable to talk about themselves and their accomplishments, and they're unable to have a healthy conversation about anything. And and that comes in when you don't have that practice, or if you sit down and somebody's asking you questions about your your experience or whatever, and your your answers are very short and succinct, like, well, tell me what you did in the Marine Corps. Well, I blew things up to shotguns. That's a red flag also. Like, yeah. tell me more. Like, that doesn't that doesn't sell you on this job. It doesn't sell me to hire you. So that practice of being able to talk about things and have meaningful conversations, even if they are not TMI, but even if you do go into a lot of good detail, that's practice for interviewing. You'll find out how people react to what you're telling them. You'll find out how, like what they want to hear, what they're asking for. Uh, and, and you'll just get better at selling yourself and, and being prepared to answer questions on the fly. That's the hardest thing for a lot of people in interviews is they get nervous and then they seem nervous mm. and then they seem very non-confident and they seem kind of, I don't know how to answer this question. And this feels like a trick question. And then it, get, it can get kind of strange. And then when you have your interviewer doing all the talking because you're not answering questions at length, uh, that can be a really awkward situation for all parties involved. Yeah. Absolutely. 
Uh, so, hey, uh, great first show back after a couple weeks. Um, you know, I know in another couple weeks I'll be traveling because of business. So we'll have another week off here shortly. But next week we are back. We, we, we have a, a show planned for next week. So appreciate everybody checking us out. Loved all the uh, the interaction we had this week uh, from social media. Uh, if you're checking us out, you can always comment. Uh, we like to try to answer as many questions as possible. I had a bunch of interaction this week. Absolutely loved it. So thank everybody so much. You can check us out on all those major social media platforms as well as all the major podcast platforms. Tell a family member, give us a like, rating, review. We appreciate it very much. And until next week, we'll be right back here on Beyond the Wire.